Bubble, and welcome to the mm, About That podcast with me, your host, your favorite geek psychologist, your favorite pop culture enthusiast, your favorite queen of the nerds, Dr. Vanessa Hintz. And today, good people, our conversation will be focused on Shiro's. We're going to talk a little bit about, quote, normative femininity, as well as dynamics of intersectionality, to include highlighting some badass sheroes throughout the realm of popular culture, and talking a little bit about, A, why we love them, and B, how they may serve to reinforce some of these concepts we're talking about, and or how they rage against the machine and do whatever the hell they want. And so before we get into all of that, I want to give a few disclaimers. So first and foremost, I think anytime we categorize an entire identity group, there is propensity and also a likelihood that we will make some sweeping generalizations. And so I want to uplift and acknowledge that women are not monolithic. And so even though in the course of this conversation, some of what I am describing can sound as if I am asserting such, I want to reiterate and say off top, women are not monolithic. And though, again, it may sound like generalized conversation today, that is not my intention. Another sort of disclaimer I want to give is that some of the research that we will discuss some of the concepts that we will discuss are couched in a very specific context that context being cis normative and so for those of you who are unfamiliar with the term cisgender cisgender refers to someone whose sex assigned at birth matches their gender identity sort of there is an alignment between one's gender identity, and one's, quote, biological sex. And so what we're going to talk about today, again, some of the research, some of the concepts, cisnormative, many of them also heteronormative. And so when we talk about, quote, traditional gender roles, there is this assumption that the way that one's femininity presents itself is directly related to and sort of in relationship with masculinity, um, which again has traditionally been ascribed to male identified folks. And so again, some of what we'll talk about today, not only cis normative, heteronormative. And again, when we bring in this, this, this idea of quote, traditional gender roles, we are absolutely operating within an understanding of sort of binary classifications of genders. So there are men and there are women. Um, Again, I do not ascribe to that belief. So I want to honor and uplift that some of this, some of these concepts that we're going to talk about are absolutely couched in those ways of being in those ways of thinking. And I think it is important to uplift and acknowledge that. So we take what it is that we're talking about today with a grain of salt and understanding that because this may be representative of a group of people who identify as women, it doesn't mean it is the only way to relate to, to understand women. Because again, women are not monolithic. Last thing I'll say by way of disclaimer is that I do identify as a woman, 
Because of that, during the course of this conversation, I will likely utilize the term we when I am discussing some of the experiences, struggles, etc., that women face, that women endure. Um, and so, again, it is not my intention to ever deign to speak about an entire group of people. And so my hope is that it is not interpreted as such. And so I just want to put that out there as well. So I want to start this conversation talking about, quote, normative femininity. And I'm going to contextualize this um, in a conversation about what is often referred to as the superwoman complex. I think in the most basic terms, the superwoman complex is this idea that because I have the opportunity to do all the things, then I absolutely should. And I use that word should intentionally because shoulding is going to be at the core of our conversation today. But nonetheless, the superwoman complex is this idea that because I can, I ought to. And not just try at all the things, but do all of the things to the best of my ability. And so I want to talk a little bit about the myth of perfection as it relates to the superwoman complex. And so there's an idea that, again, because we have all of these opportunities that maybe our mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers, and so on did not have, that we need to take advantage. We need to take advantage of those things, and we need to do those things to the best of our ability as best we can, dare I say, perfectly. And so we deserve, as women, to have all the things, and so we should. And what this creates unintentionally or otherwise is this cycle of evaluation, improvement, deprecation. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what that looks like. And so, again, because of the space we are in in our society, there are some women who feel as if they can do anything. I can have it all. I can have anything that I want. There are no barriers to anything that I want, which again, historically has not been the case, right? So there is this allure of having all the things. What then happens is that, okay, I, you know, based on my individual context, based on my individual values, goals, whatever, I sort of assess where I am in my life and where it is that I want to go. So I know that I can go wherever I want. There's this allure, again, that I can do whatever I want. I can have what I want. And so let me figure out where I am now and how far is, how far am I from those things that I want? So that's a process that we call self-evaluation. After we assess and we figure out, okay, you know, I'm here and I want to be here. Um, what do I need to do to get there? So then we start putting in this work, whether that be related to education, whether that be related to employment, whether that be related to physical or mental wellness, what have you, relationships, what have you. We assess where it is that we are, where it is that we want to go, and then we take steps to get from point A to point B. Undoubtedly, because we have set the bar so high to begin with, the bar being superwoman, the bar being perfection, because we have set that bar so high, undoubtedly we don't reach it. And then what happens after we've gone through this process of evaluation, after we've gone through this process of self-improvement, ultimately what happens next is deprecation because we have given it, I won't even say our all, I'll say we've given it what we've given it and we haven't reached the mountaintop. We haven't reached 
the place where we are doing all the things and doing all the things perfectly because you know what? That doesn't exist. But that's not something that comes into our conscious awareness because the world, history, your friends, all these people are telling you, if you just work harder, if you just grind harder, you can get it. You can get there. You can get there. And ultimately we don't. And so the cycle continues. We have this thought, this opinion, this belief that we can have any and everything that we want. We work really hard to get there. Ultimately, we don't get everything that we want. We feel bad and then we start the cycle anew. And so concerning the superwoman complex and how it it relates to this sort of myth of perfection that we just described, what I think is important to underscore is that there is seemingly no prioritization of these various things that we want in our lives. So there's no, everything is done sort of concurrently as opposed to sequentially. So I have to be the best lover. I have to be the best friend. I have to be the best at my job. I have to be the best daughter. I have to be the, all of those things have to happen at the same time. I have to drink a gallon of water. I have to make sure I meditate. I have to make sure I go to the gym. All these things, all of it is happening simultaneously. And folks can start to equate their value, their sense of worth with their ability to engage in all of these tasks, A, to the best of their ability and B, simultaneously. And so whether internally or externally, we are given value based on how well we handle our business. And again, I think what is important to understand with regard to women and how this equates to the superwoman complex is again, this sort of socio-historical context. So because my mom or my grandma didn't have these opportunities, there's an added pressure on me to do all the things because I have been given this gift. And again, whether that pressure is internal or external, I think it definitely comes from all sides. So I want to talk a little bit now about some sheroes in popular culture and how their stories either serve to reinforce and or buck against this idea of superwomen and perfection and that's what it means to be quote feminine. The first shiro that I would like to uplift is Daenerys Stormborn of the House Targaryen, the first of her name. The Unburnt, Queen of Marine, Queen of the Andals and the Roinar and the First Men, Khaleesi of the Great Grass Sea, Breaker of Chains, and Mother of Dragons. Can I just say that I want a title like that, that people have to introduce, like every time I do a speaking engagement, like I want to be super long like that. Like I know people read my bio, that's super dope, and I, and I want somebody to write my bio like that, because that's tight. So for about 90% of Game of Thrones, I was here with Daenerys Stormborn of House Targaryen. I was rooting for her. And then they did what they did. Her whole character arc just poof in one season. Anyway, so Daenerys was forced to marry her husband, Khal Drogo, um, and ended up actually falling in love with him after some very uncomfortable just uh, it was very hard to watch their relationship initially it was not consensual and that wasn't fun um and so 
they were married and she, they were expecting a child. Tragedy strikes. Um, her husband dies and she actually kills him. Sad. Um, and her son is born, stillborn. And then she's told that she will never have any children again. Lo and behold, she hatches three dragons. So she becomes the mother of dragons. So those are her children. And I will not go into any more because we do not have time to go through all of that Game of Thrones nonsense. Um, and I say that in a loving way because child is just a whole much. We'll just have to draw a chart and it'll just be too much. Nonetheless, what I want to say very briefly about Daenerys is what I valued and appreciated about her is that she exuded this great empathy for marginalized people. Again, she was the breaker of chains. She would go to town on any colonizer, which again, we could talk about how that is ironic. Um, nonetheless, she would essentially, she was ruthless when she was attempting to protect, attempting to fight for those who were oppressed. I will also say that it is interesting that Daenerys' story revolves around this trauma that she experienced related to motherhood. So they repeat it many times throughout the course of the series. She repeats it many times throughout the course of the series. I will never birth a child. I will never birth a child. Which again is not good, better. Otherwise, like she feels how she feels. Like, I mean, you know what I'm saying? I think it is an example of we see Daenerys literally with all of these things, all of these things. She is a commander of a great army. She is going back to her home to get her revenge. She does like, you know, have some relationships here and there. She has her dragons. She has all these people who adore. She has all of these things. And yet in some instances, her value is equated to this other thing that she doesn't have. And so somehow she holistically is devalued because she can't have kids. And so again, not good, better, otherwise, just an observation. Another Shiro I wanna highlight very briefly is the one, the only, the incomparable, Eleven from Stranger Things, who is a, I would say a super-powered person. (laughs) She has psychokinetic abilities. Um, She basically was deprived from socialization her entire life until she meets the gang, Mike and Lucas and them, um, from Stranger Things. And initially we see Eleven as very timid, withdrawn, very cautious, uh, understandably so, of other people. Um, However, we see her adapt very quickly and she learns to communicate. And I think her development over the course of Stranger Things has been absolutely beautiful. I think that's a testament to the writing. I think that's a testament to Millie Bobby Brown who plays Eleven, yes. Um, The other thing I'll say about Eleven is that she is often very reluctant to use her powers against anybody who doesn't deserve it. So she's not out here just, you know, wilding. I think even in the most recent season, season four, when she hit that girl with that skate, I mean, that girl wasn't innocent. I know people had a lot to say about that. Nonetheless, um... What I'd like to say about Eleven is, again, I think she, too, what we have seen over the course of Stranger Things is her really developing holistically. I think initially we see her as a weapon 
which is how she was sort of socialized. We see her as a weapon. And I think what they have done a beautiful job of is really, again, giving her depth and complexity, which I think she always had. Um, I think it's just much more intentional now. We see her relationship with Mike. We see her relationship with Max, all these different things. And again, I think that complexity that we see that is is blossoming with her character there is still some of that like we talked about before some of that pressure that she has to do all of these things so the 11 that we first met who only wanted egos and wasn't really able to communicate with people or whatever like is that 11 somehow less valuable than the one that we see now who is much more communicative again is making out with mike all over the place you know like how do we equate or how do we compare the value of one over the other and i'm not just not to say there's a right or wrong answer to that i think it's just something that we have to consider is the 11 that we see now given all of her progression is she more valuable than the 11 we initially met the 11 that we met in that white hospital gown when you think about how you compare those two versions iterations of 11 do you find yourself giving one more value over the other subsequently when you think about yourself do you give yourself more or less value depending on what it is that you can do or how it is that you relate You know what I'm saying? And again, I think this is directly related to what we talked about prior with regard to this idea that you have to do and be all the things so that if you're not doing and being all the things, you somehow have less worth. And the next Shiro that I want to chronicle because she is the queen of turning all of that on its head And before I do so, I must pause and give a special shout out to Dr. Scott Jordan of Dark Loops Productions and a great friend of mine who, if I had not met Scott and developed the relationship that we now have, love you, Scott, I would not be in love with Jessica Jones as much as I am now. Scott was the first person, not like of ever, like not that, you know, whatever, but Scott was the first person that I really listened to that told me about Jessica Jones. And let me tell y'all about Jessica Jones. So Jessica Jones is a retired superhero who is currently working as a private investigator. She has her own investigation firm. Is that what it's called? Anyways, it's called Alias Investigations. Um, so Jessica Jones tried the superhero thing. She was an Avenger for a time. Um, she was in a lot of superhero groups and she was just like, no, this not for me. Y'all up in here doing too much. Like I'm not trying to be about that. And so the way that Jessica actually got her abilities, um, and again, there's probably different iterations of this story, depending on what you read, what you watch, what have you. But essentially, she was in a car accident um, when she was younger, um, and her entire family was killed. And again, depending on how you are watching or reading Jessica Jones, that may or may not be true. But nonetheless, her family was killed in this car accident, and she awoke 
just to learn that her whole family was dead and now she has these powers. And so what I can appreciate about Jessica Jones's story, um, and it actually is, there's, there's a beautiful series of panels in Jessica Jones alias volume four. It's kind of like a flashback scene where Jessica is remembering her time in high school and how it was just, you know, teenage angst, all of that. She was living with, um, I think like a, in a group home or like with a foster family or something. And she was just remembering all of this traumatic stuff. She was remembering all of this stuff. She, she was very emotional. You can see her just like all of this emotion that was just coming off of the page. And in the course of all of this, she basically starts flying. So Jessica Jones, her powers are essentially, she's like real strong. She's real durable and she can fly. I use that term loosely because really she just like jumps around everywhere. She hasn't really gotten, you know, gotten the hang of it. But in this series of panels, we see her basically start flying. Like she is experiencing all of this emotion and she basically channels it. And she starts flying or jumping from one place to another, however you look at it. And I thought that that was so beautiful, just the way that it was drawn, but also to see her empower herself to manage her pain as she sees fit. She was crying, which is a normal, beautiful way to manage your pain, and then she started flying. And the other thing I'll say about Jessica Jones is... Not only did she say, nah, I'm good, to the Avengers, to Captain Marvel, to all these people, right? She's like, nah, y'all over there just acting all kinds of colonizer-ish, and I'm not trying to be down with that. Um, But she also is portrayed as someone who drinks a lot of alcohol. Um, And I think the way that we relate to that, the way that 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 was related in the show... Um, somewhat in the in the comics as well. Um, I don't necessarily see it as an issue. I think that that is also me understanding Jessica Jones for what she is. I don't think she would necessarily see it as an issue. Um, I think because Jessica Jones is out here assigning her own worth to herself. If she don't think her drinking is a problem, you know what I'm saying? It's not. And if she's not out here, then negatively influencing other people because of her drinking. Do you, fam? You know what I'm saying? She's not out here driving while she's drunk and hurting people. She's not out here. You know what I'm saying? She's not doing that. She's drinking because she wants to drink. And she's continuing to drink because she wants to drink. And again, I don't want to somehow diminish or talk about alcohol use like it is you know, a game, quote unquote, that's not, that's not my intention. Um, my intention is that Jessica Jones is choosing how she relates to that in a way that works for her. And again, we see that change as she gets into a relationship and ultimately marries Luke Cage as she becomes a mother. We see that change. I think when Jessica is solo dolo and she's doing her own thing, I'm here for it, honey. Like you do you, you do you. The next Shiro I want to chronicle before we transition is none other than Harleen Quinzel, a.k.a. Harley Quinn. 
And so I'm not going to spend too much time going into her backstory um, just because that's not what I want to focus on. What I do want to focus on, though, concerning what we've been talking about with, quote, normative femininity um, is Harley Quinn's relationship with Poison Ivy. So from what I understand, Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy first met during Batman the Animated Series in 1993. They are both members of the Gotham City Sirens, along with Catwoman, a.k.a. Selina Kyle. And throughout the course of their relationship, both on screen, in comics, what have you, in 2009, Ivy admitted that she loved Harley. And one thing that I'll say about this that I think, again, was absolutely amazing is that there was no, well, you love me in what way? There was none of that. There was none of that. Ivy said she loved Harley, and Harley was like, all right, bet. I love you, too. There was nothing. We didn't have to put a label on that because why do we need to do that? That is an external expectation, right? In 2015, Harley and Ivy were portrayed as non-monogamous romantic partners. Yeah, I'm here for it. Okay, listen. I'm here for it. Do you. This screams... I'm going to do me. And I absolutely am here for it. The other thing that I'll say about what I think is valuable about the representation of the relationship between Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy is, again, like we talked about with, you know, there was no, I love you like a friend. I love you like this. I love you like, there was none of that. In addition, Harley didn't have a big coming out saga. She kind of is just living her life in the way that seems most authentic to her. Oh, I love Ivy. Cool. Oh, we're going to be in this non-monogamous relationship. Cool. I, I feel that the way that their relationship is being portrayed is first and foremost, I think, a, a good antithesis to the way that her relationship with the Joker is portrayed. But I will also say that, again, there is something that is raging against the machine concerning societal expectations for women, for relationships, for whatever that I am here for and that I absolutely love. There is much more to be said about Harley, about Jessica Jones, about Eleven, about Daenerys Stormborn. I'm not going to say that, though. And what I am going to do is uplift that the, all these, these four sheroes that I just talked about, every single one of them is white. And I remember the first time I did this Shiro's presentation, it was way back when, I don't even know. Um, it dawned on me that many of the Shiro's that I was discussing were white. And I remember somebody asked me something about that. And I was really trying to think about, okay, how did this happen? Why is this happening? And I think in the moment, I picked characters that were popular, that people could would easily sort of recognize. And as I have grown in my career as a professional, as I have continued to engage in my own sort of journey of self-discovery, my own journey related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, what have you, I understand now why and how the larger culture plays a role in the fact that the most popular characters I could think of were all white. What I want to transition to talking a little bit about now is intersectionality, which I am sure 
that you have heard that term a time or two, particularly over the past two and a half years. Um, But intersectionality is a term that first appeared in 1989 and is credited to Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a law professor. But essentially, intersectionality refers to the ways in which forms of oppression are interconnected and cannot be separated. And so I'm going to say that again. It's essentially how systems of oppression compound and cannot be seen separately from one another. So systems of oppression being examples being racism, sexism, homophobia, etc. And so what I want to uplift before we move forward is the difference between intersectionality and what we refer to as an intersectional identity. And so everyone has an intersectional identity. Again, we are not monolithic people. We are not just one thing. We are all unique cultural constellations of identity. So I am a black, cisgendered, biracial, heterosexual woman. I could go on and on and on, right? So everybody has a intersectional identity. Everyone also has, depending on the identities in which we hold, how systems of oppression and privilege are working in different spaces is going to be unique. You know what I'm saying? So an experience for a white woman is going to be very different for than an experience that a trans woman of color has, you know, just, just as, you know, thinking about it in that way. So intersectionality is, it is an idea that really honors and uplifts that systems of oppression cannot see, be seen far and away from one another. And I believe Kimberly Crenshaw, when she originally sort of started talking about intersectionality, she was, I believe she was representing someone in like a workplace suit. And the question put before her was, you know, was this person's mistreatment due to the fact that they were black or due to the fact that they were a woman? And what Kimberly Crenshaw and what intersectionality argues is that you can't make that distinction. You can't separate those things. You can't say, oh, well, they totally ignored the fact that she was a woman and it was all because she was black or vice versa. There's no way on earth to do that. There's no way to distinguish between interconnected systems of oppression. And that is precisely what intersectionality is. Again, not to be confused with having an intersectional identity, which is, again, I cannot look at you or any other person and say, oh, you are just a, you are just a, you are just a, new. no, 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 no. That would be devaluing all the complexity and beauty and uniqueness that makes you who you are. And I will not do that. And so nonetheless, what I think is important is again, as, as we bring this back to the context of Shiroism, all of the women that I've discussed up until this point, all of the issues that they have all of the whatever it is that we want to talk about, they all have one protective factor in common, and that is the fact that they are white. And I don't say that as any sort of a shade. I say that in the context of, particularly in America, and I would say globally, um, being a white person gives you privilege, which again is not a shade, meant to be a description. And so... When we think about Shiroism, I think that has to be part of the conversation, right? And so what I want to honor and uplift now 
are some sheroes that navigate similar spaces to the ones that we've talked about up until this point with this sort of added complexity, this added layer of different identities that create additional barriers for them. And so the first um, that I want to uplift very briefly, and these, these two that I will just sort of mention. So for any of you out there who are looking for representations of diverse characters in comics and in movies and here you go. So the first person I would like to uplift is America Chavez um, of the Marvel Cinematic Universe recently, but also um, in Marvel Comics. So America Chavez is Latina. She is bilingual. She is a member of the LGBTQ plus community and she is a trauma survivor. And again, I think the way that she has to not only navigate her history of trauma being from another, you know, she's like a multiversal traveler and she's just like, oh, she got a lot going on. Like, again, we ain't got time for all that, but she got a lot going on. She got a whole, whole, whole lot going on in terms of the things that she has to navigate, the dynamics she has to navigate. And she now finds herself in sort of our universe as a person of color, which carries its own stuff. And on top of that, again, she is navigating um, sort of her identity as a member of the LGBTQ plus community. And when I say navigating, I mean navigating that in a world where that is devalued. And so she is not only dealing with history of trauma, just trying to be a superhero, (laughs) trying to be, you know what I'm saying, all these different things. In addition to that, just her being who she is requires a lot of energy in a world that again doesn't necessarily value those things similarly i want to uplift maya lopez aka echo um who is a member of the cheyenne nation she's deaf she is a survivor of trauma as well at age nine she was abandoned by her mother and her father was murdered shortly thereafter she was raised by the man who killed her father, but at the time she didn't know, and then she found out, and it was just like a whole mess. And so, again, a whole lot going on there. She, too, is bilingual. The other thing I I just want to uplift about Echo, and again, if you want to really change your life, you need to read the Vision Quest story arc in Daredevil that talks all about Maya, and it is just so beautifully done, so beautifully done. Um, But nonetheless, Maya, we saw Maya on screen in the recent Hawkeye series on Disney Plus. And I want to bring it to our awareness, Alakwa Cox, who is the actress who played Echo in this series. And one thing that I think is beautiful about her and about her portrayal is that Alakwa is a person with a disability. And they actually wrote that into the show because she advocated for that to be done. You know what I'm saying? She advocated for it. You know, she said that she wanted, you know, young disabled girls, disabled people to know that they can do anything, right? And that is, it's like giving me chills right now talking about it. Like that is, that is beautiful. And again, not only do we see Echo as a character with a disability, but then we see the actress who plays her not only as someone who is deaf, but also someone who is an amputee. And so, again, amazing, amazing. Come on with it, Marvel. Y'all coming with it. 
Kamala Khan, aka Miss Marvel. Amazing. Um, absolutely amazing. Um, and I think what was very unique about the portrayal in the TV show, which again, admittedly, I am not as familiar with Miss Marvel in the comics, but in the TV show, we see Kamala Khan as a Pakistani American, as a teenager, just trying to navigate teenage life, but also as a super nerd. So shout out to Marvel for really uplifting nerd culture. The fact that they showed her at a convention and dressed up, I was like, okay, I'm here for it, obviously. You know what I'm saying? Um, but I think what the TV show did well to demonstrate are dynamics of like acculturation for families sort of intergenerationally. And so we see Kamala really acculturating herself, really working to straddle these two worlds between her sort of Pakistani heritage and also her American. You know, we see all we see her sort of navigating these two spaces, whereas her parents are maybe not necessarily as adept at navigating those spaces. And again, that's not a shade, but just more so again, maybe have not had the same opportunities as her to really, um, you know, go through that acculturation process. And so that creates tension between, uh, Miss Marvel and her parents. And again, I think it was so beautifully done and the way that they incorporated the family history, whoo, I'm here for it. And so the last character I want to uplift, um, in this conversation related to intersectionality is Riri Williams, aka Ironheart. And I know uh, my brother from another, Victor Dandridge, and I talked about Riri in the context of our conversation about Wakanda Forever. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Riri's character um, as it is portrayed in the comics. Um, and so we see her as just like she said in the movie, young, black, and gifted, um, just a genius smart black girl essentially right and as victor and i talked about there's all kinds of you know considerations related to that trope um and i think one of the more upsetting things to me again was when i learned that riri's backstory because again like many of our heroes she is a survivor of trauma when i learned that her backstory was that her best friend was killed in a drive-by shooting. <sighs> That's exactly, that was exactly my reaction. Like, really? Really? Cool. Um, and so, nonetheless, what I want to highlight with regard to Riri is, so in the comics, and we see it sort of in, in the One Content Forever film as well, she sort of follows in Iron Man's footsteps. She builds an Iron Man suit, you know, she does all these things. And in the comics, she actually becomes, quote, the new Iron Man after Tony Stark, spoiler alert, dies. Um, she becomes like, quote, the new Iron Man, aka Iron Heart. And when I was researching for another presentation I was doing and I was utilizing Riri, I came across so much online hate about this fictional character. And I'm going to read to you all some things that I saw on Al Gore's internet related to why Riri is a terrible character. And I just want to remind you that this is a fictional person in a fictional universe in a place that somebody just made up in their mind. But anyways, the first thing I saw was that Riri does not fit 
the Iron Man mythos. So a story that somebody just made up that is not based on any historical fact, this is not a part of it. Okay. Riri does not have any personality. Read that as Riri doesn't have personality that I approve of. Riri's backstory is poorly done. And as I mentioned, I have all kinds of concerns about the way that her backstory is written. And my primary concern being that it just reinforces stereotypes about black people, um, about black people who live on the south side of Chicago, all these different things, because that's where she was from, south side of Chicago, I believe. Um, And so, yes, and the backstory of a young black girl who overcomes her circumstance to make it to genius level, da, 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 is poorly done when compared to Tony Stark's backstory. The billionaire, son of a, what? What are we doing? I also read, Riri's actions are often more villainous than heroic. She is a sociopath and narcissist with a victim complex. She only became a superhero so she could prove her teacher wrong out of spite. Now to call someone following in the footsteps of Tony Stark a narcissist, if that ain't throwing stones, number one. Number two, she only became a superhero so she could prove someone wrong. Isn't that every superhero art? Like, isn't that every single one? Like, if we take it back to Joseph Campbell, And the hero's journey, isn't that part of it? Like, you fail and then you get back up. Like, what is happening here? Um, Riri Williams is self-centered and does not accept her mistakes. She has somehow managed to develop the cult following of people who kiss the ground that she walks on. Okay. So, herein lies an example of dynamics of intersectionality at play. And so all of the hate that this character that is portrayed as a young, black, gifted, natural hair, all of these things, right? Would we have the same venom spewed at this character if she were white? If she were a man? Tony Stark was a white man that did pretty much any and everything that she did minus that traumatic backstory did he get all of this hate absolutely not and so again for those of you interested in characters that maybe look more like you have the experiences that you may have etc or for those of you who are parents to children of color i highly recommend any and all the characters that i just described and so many more and with that I want to bring this conversation to a close and have our mm, about that moment related to Shiro's and dynamics of intersectionality and femininity. And so one thing that I that I will say that I feel like is extremely valuable about the women, not only that I have described, but you know, the Shiro's that we see on screen is sort of what I just alluded to. There is something so validating and sometimes affirming about seeing someone who looks like you seeing someone who identifies in the same way that you identify 
seeing someone that has similar experiences. We talked about it in our conversation around Wakanda Forever. There is something so amazing about seeing, for me, about seeing an Afrofuturist nation. You know what I'm saying? As someone who feels like that's above and beyond anything that I'll see in my lifetime, there is something that is valuable. And even in the context of talking about these sheroes today, there that is, I think, one of the reasons that I am in love with Jessica Jones. Her I don't give two dams about what you think attitude is something that I deign to live out. You know what I'm saying? She is who she is. She gets into this relationship with Luke. She she becomes a mom and still her everything is about are we good? It doesn't have anything to do with anybody else. The way that people think she should parent, the way that anybody thinks she should be, it's all about her and her people and are we good? If we good and that's it. And again, I think there's something that is so so valuable about that. Something that I think can be good, but also has the potential to be maybe somewhat problematic, and that is this idea of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so, as I mentioned, sometimes when we see characters who look like us, we see women who look like us, when we see, you know, what have you, sometimes when they are represented in this sort of stereotypical way, it can reinforce the beliefs that we have that that is that is what I have to be. That is all I can be. I'm never going to be allowed to be anything else. And so that is somewhat problematic and sort of is in direct opposition to what I just described in terms of seeing someone and feeling like that that representation gives you hope. That representation gives you, you know, motivates you. I do think that there's another side of that coin, whereas, again, we can internalize negative attitudes, values, and beliefs about ourselves because of these stereotypical representations. And the last thing that I'll say, and it's sort of something I've been alluded to through, alluding to throughout the course of this conversation, is no one gets to dictate your value. No one. And I think that many of these characters that we talked about having an awareness of how they apply conditions of worth to themselves can maybe empower us to do the same. How is it that I ascribe value to myself? You know what I'm saying? And again, not to beat a dead horse, but that is one of the reasons I love Jessica Jones. And I think that the first time I read Jessica Jones' alias, the first time I watched the Netflix series, that it resonated with me. It resonated with me. No one ascribes value to me except me. And I think understanding the way that society will tell us how we have to value ourselves, like we talked about before, this myth of perfection, understanding that has really helped me to externalize any of those feelings that I have about myself. Oh, I feel like I need to work out and then do this and then do this and all these things all at the same time. You know why I think that? Because that's what society has told me I have to do. That's what society has told me gives me value. But you know what? Nah, I'm not trying to be on that and I'm not gonna perpetuate this cycle. And so I think that seeing these things play out on screen gives us an opportunity to really explore that in a way that is in a safe distance, so to speak. So like me having that conversation with myself about my own conditions of worth 
would it have been as easy before I watched Jessica Jones or before I did, you know, like all my, my own sort of reflection? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. There is value to understanding larger dynamics, to understanding systemic issues, because having that understanding can really help us and motivate us to externalize these negative valuations that we put on ourselves and really empower us to be the ones who dictate our value, to be the ones who dictate our own conditions of worth. Because again, nobody can devalue you except you. You know what I'm saying? And again, that doesn't mean that the world is going to treat you like you feel like you need to be treated. It does mean that you can get to the place where you understand that ain't got nothing to do with me because I dictate my worth. One of my mantras that I live by is that my self-worth is not dictated by external expectations, which is much easier said than done. Let me tell you something much easier said than done. And is also something that helps me to navigate spaces in which I feel devalued, spaces in which I am told and treated as if I don't have value. The fact that I understand that that is a product of a larger system, a larger issue, and not because of me or any shortcomings on my part, that has been an absolute godsend to me. And I hope that it can be one to you as well. And with that, I thank you all for your time, for your attention, for sharing in this space with me today. I wish you and your families safety, health, and joy. Until next time, good people.